Hello, everyone. I am thrilled to introduce you guys to an absolutely fantastic guest today. This guest is a Tony Award-winning producer, a documentary filmmaker, a business coach. He teaches breath work and creativity and has 30 years in the entertainment industry. In fact, he's the kind of person that can go from the Tony Awards to ashrams and then go run a multi-million dollar business in between. He is fascinating. He spends his life helping creative business owners from startups to eight-figure brands from the inside out. Nick is amazing. He has retreats, one-on-one energetic coaching sessions, documentaries. He is phenomenal. And you guys, the time that I spend with him, every single time I get to spend time with him, I feel uplifted and elated. His story is one of really knowing who you are deep inside, of following that knowing, but he also has a ton of pain and trauma that he had to work really, really hard to get through and get past. And he had the radical audacity to sit in that pain and really work through it. I'm thrilled for you guys to meet him today. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Radical Audacity Podcast. I'm Tiffany Kane, your host. On this podcast, you are going to meet people that walk their own path, live life on their own terms, let go of other people's rules and expectations and the shoulds in life, and instead live life in their own truth, integrity, and authenticity. This podcast will give you the inspiration you need to live your own radically audacious life. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. As you heard in the introduction, I am so thrilled for you to meet Nick Demas. Nick Demas and I connected in a forum on Facebook, and he inspired me so much that I had to have him on the podcast. And you guys... He is the first man on this podcast. You know, this is a podcast where we do a lot of women's empowerment and women's voices, but Nick was so inspiring to me that I felt like I just had to have him on. And Nick and I actually have a lot of synchronicities in my life, so he might be like my long-lost twin soul or something like that. So I am thrilled for you guys to meet Nick. Nick, welcome to the show. Okay, well, first of all, I am so honored to be your first. You're my first. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever had a woman say that to you? (laughs) Um, no. Uh, it might be because um, I'm blushing. <laughs> you can keep blushing because um, <laughs> usually I'm not with women. <laughs> uh, yeah, right? <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Uh, and before we start in like the interview conversation thing, I have to say congratulations. The last time we talked, you actually were on your honeymoon and you talked to me and I am just, I just wanted to say congratulations to you again. How is newlywed life? You know what? It's so interesting because 
it's exactly the same as it was the day before I got married. Like literally <laughs> nothing feels different to me. Now, granted, my husband and I have been together for uh, six years. So okay. it's not like it's a new thing. You know what I'm saying? Like it's not like- right. And look, we're not, we're not young. I'm 50 years old. So- it's it's spring chicken. We're chicken. Spring chicken. Bok, 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 we're chicken. <laughs> but you know, I mean, we're we're not young, so we knew what we were getting into. Do you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Yeah. Uh, he already had a starter marriage before gay marriage was a, a, th- a thing. Like before it was mm. real. Like he had like a long twenty year relationship, and so he had that, and I had a string of relationships. <laughs> <laughs> oh, spicy! <laughs> uh, but but consequently, you know. It just feels the same. It feels deeper. Basically feels like we've deepened the relationship. Mm, I love that. Well, congratulations. Thank you. And I felt so honored that you talked to me on your honeymoon. That was like, wow. <laughs> Thank you. So today we want to talk to you. Your your life is filled with moments that I call radically audacious moments. And those are the moments where you choose what's right for you even if other people don't understand. And oftentimes those choices come with a certain amount of pain and difficulty, but you're willing to handle that because they are the choices that are right for you. And you have a whole series of these choices. So I want to start kind of in the beginning with your choice to get into ballet and theater. Yeah, I'm not sure if I chose it or it chose me. Hmm. You know, we lived across the street uh, from a dance school teacher, and I was so fascinated to the point of obsessed, I think, in many ways, with the dancers. And mm. But we grew up, I grew up in, I say we, but it was me, my parents, I grew up in a small town in Montana. And mm. this was in the 1980s. Boys did not dance. You wore cowboy boots and, and... I mean, it was just it was just not manly, right? I was to mm-hmm. be playing football. I was to be a wrestler. These are the these are the things that I was to be doing. And I just wanted to go hang out with the girls. See, hanging out the girls. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to dance. And I sat on the sidelines and I and I used to watch every day after school. And finally, the dance teacher said, Nick. Why don't you why don't you get up and join us? And mm. I, I remember that moment clearly because even then I knew, okay, well, tap dance is okay. That's manly. Like Fred Astaire does that. Gene Kelly does that. There's something like okay with that. And so that began my love of the performing mm. arts. And I got up and I tap dance. And then that eventually led to that bravery of ballet. Mm-hmm. And woo, did I take some heat for that? as a kid, you know? Um, But I loved it so much that I didn't care. I just couldn't picture myself not doing it. I loved it more than I loved the sort of, what would we now be called bullying that Mm -hmm. I received because of it. And- That makes me want to cry. You knew yourself so well at that age that there was no amount of, of the hurt other people caused you that would take you away from that. Well, I think in many ways- it was an escape from the pain. Mm. Oh, 
that I was able to go into my body and move my body because, you know, we store pain in our body. We trap it in our, in our being, right? And being able to express myself and move was a way to express that pain and the joy, but also the pain that I couldn't necessarily do in the culture that I was in. Boys mm-hmm. don't cry. Boys don't ha- don't show emotion. And so I was able to show it through dance. So while it was both, it was both at the same time, basically, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Mm. I love that. That is amazing. Okay, so continue your journey, ballet, and then... Yeah, and, you know, by the time... We moved to Michigan, thankfully, uh, into a lovely arts community town called Traverse City, Michigan, when I was 13. And by 16 years old, I was a professional. I had my first professional job uh, at 19. Well, I went to college for a year. And while I'm in college, and by the way, my father, that was a whole thing too, of my father saying, you're going to be a lawyer. You love to argue. (laughs) You love to talk. You're going to go be a lawyer. And me saying, oh, no, dad, I'm going to be an actor and a dancer. And him saying, well, then we're not going to pay for school. And me saying, okay, guess what? I'm going to make it happen anyway. And who got a full ride? This guy. Oh, my goodness. Radical audacity right there, standing up to your parents, standing up to your dad yeah. and living in your truth. Now, wow. the interesting thing is he's come a long way about it and you know, since then. But at the time, it was just scary. And now, as an yeah. adult, I can see why that choice would mm-hmm. be very, very scary to a parent, right? But I went to school for a year. I'm in school, and I go to an audition for a tour, a national tour. And guess what? I book it. So (laughs) I make the choice to leave school. Now, that didn't go over well with the parents either. It was like, wait, but you're in college. (laughs) Stay in college. (laughs) And I went on the road for a year with the tour. And when the tour ended in the spring, I uh, had the summer. And then I was to go back to school in the fall. That was sort of the deal that I'd made with my parents. And I decided I would go to New York, as one does when one's an actor, dancer, for the summer, supposedly. But I knew there was something in me that knew I was not coming back. (laughs) And, you know, being the kind of naive, very naive Midwestern kid that I was, uh, I moved to New York. I knew two people in the entire city. I... Moved with $800 in my pocket because all that money I made on that tour, I spent. I had <laughs> new coats, clothes, going out, you know, whatever. And I moved with that money and I stayed on my friends of the, the two people. I stayed on their couch for a month. I didn't know uptown from downtown. I didn't know the subway. This was before there was a cell phone, right? So this mm-hmm. was old school. You have to just make it happen. And... Uh, I just decided I was going to do it. And I now look at that, you know, I was 19. Yeah. I look at that and think, and this was, you know, New York was a very different place at the time. It was, it was a little scary to say the least. Uh, 
But I just knew that it was right for me. And I have to tell you, uh, the number of people that told me I was crazy, how could you do this? What are you thinking? You're never going to make it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, including my parents. I left my parents. Mm-hmm. I remember very, very clearly. My They didn't say that, but my mother cried. Mm-hmm. And as I, as she was putting me on the plane at the airport, she cried. My dad gave me a hug and said, good luck, basically. <laughs> and my mom started crying. And I realized in that moment, oh, they're scared. But I yes. wasn't. I wasn't scared. There was something in me that just knew that it was right for me. You had a knowing. At 19, you had a knowing about what was right for you. But I also believe that I was running. I was mm-hmm. running away. Because there's really more to this story in between the 14 and 19-year-old in that uh, during that time, I was being sexually abused. Oh, Nick. I had been groomed by a director, actually, in the theater. And I, that now I see it as grooming. I didn't understand that at the time, mm-hmm. right? Like, I didn't understand what was going on. I had these these longings and this desperate need for connection. Mm-hmm. And I was gay, which was so, you know, shunned and wrong in the 80s. And there was the AIDS crisis and all of that was happening. And it was a very, very difficult time for me. And I found somebody who would take advantage of me, basically. Yeah. And that senior year of high school, actually, right before I went, went away to college that year, uh, I found out that his that he had had a boyfriend that I didn't know about. Oh no! Who was dying of AIDS? Oh, and man. so I spent my senior year of high school every day looking in the mirror for lesions. If you remember, that was one of the mm-hmm. the first sort of signs of HIV/AIDS. And so I would look in the mirror all over my body, and thankfully. Uh, when I did turn 18, because I couldn't get a test until I was 18, because parents weren't, you weren't allowed without a parent permission. And I did not feel like I could tell my parents what was going on because I had been told by him not to, first of all. Right. right? And second right. of all, I knew that if my dad found out that this person potentially could have given me AIDS, you know, passed it on, given is a really, you know, but passed it on and had been taking advantage of me, my dad might kill him. That was what was in my brain, right? Yeah. And oh, that's so much for you to carry. That was so that much, so much. But I think that I. But again, my my sort of radical audacity was two 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 parts. There was a part of me that was running, right? Mm-hmm. There was a part of me that was running from myself, and there was a part of me that really already knew myself mm-hmm. at the same time. At the same time, mm. so. New York became this refuge for me where I could express myself fully, where I could come out of the closet, where I could be myself, where I could um, live what I thought was fully, right? What I could, where I could live my authentic self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm so blown away. I'm actually taking notes while you talk because the things that you say are so impactful and profound. This phrase that you were running from yourself and yet at the same time you knew 
yourself. That that dichotomy that um, there's a certain pulling when mm-hmm. that happens and, and a, a certain pain that comes with that because there's a part of you that goes, but I know who I am, but I'm terrified of that. I would imagine that that was just being 19, heading out to New York, the terror, the AIDS terror, the going on your own, like, wow, your courage and your strength and your bravery, um, doing all of that in the midst of all your turmoil. There I'm was just blown away. There was also this best little boy in the world thing going on mm. where I was determined to make it and be successful and prove myself to everyone who had ever bullied me, anybody who'd yeah. abused me, anybody who hadn't loved me fully for me, any of that. I was going to make it. And so there was this huge drive and determination behind all of it. By 25 years old, I was a full-time dance career for those six years. Honestly, I was very wow. fortunate. My first Well, week, how did you get your first break? My first week in New York. I went to my uh, first I went to an audition did not do well, went to a second audition and booked the show. Oh my goodness, Nick. I just kept, and then after that, I just kept working and working and working and working. Very, very fortunate. I mean, one of those like rare people who always worked. Mm. And I think that, you know, I was very driven, like I said, and I I was not going to let any no stop me. That was part of it too, because you get the, the that first no came, mm-hmm. and then there was a yes, and then there were a ton of no's after that, right? That was sort of there's there was a bit of beginner's luck there at the beginning, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you go through this period as an actor and a dancer of constant rejection. But I felt that I knew, I knew my talent and my worth. Mm-hmm. Despite everything that had happened to me, I believed that much in myself, at least on the outside, right? Internally, Mm -hmm. I was dying a very slow, painful death. But externally, I had almost like a, you know, a a mask, a costume that I wore. Uh, But it it paid off in that people hired me. Uh, And then I, I was finding myself feeling... No longer as satisfied. Let's put it that way. I'm mm-hmm. 26 years old. As I said, I was doing the Radio City Christmas show, but the music spectacular with the Rockettes. Spectacular. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the director of the show. I don't know if you've ever seen the show. Have you seen the show? The Radio you know, City I Christmas have seen- show. I have seen the parts that get shown on the Macy's Day Parade. Yeah. And it's always my favorite part. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's fun. It's a very fun show. It's a very family show. And it's Christmas time, right? How, everyone should be thrilled and happy, right? We are doing, however, about five shows a day. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is and the shows are not short. They're almost two hours long. So you're working so many hours, you would not believe it. That's 10 hours of physicality. 
Yeah, and the director of the show had us jump off the boys that were playing um, Russian bears. In the show, there's this um, ballet, but it's all with bear costumes. Mm. And it's cute. They're like really, you know, elaborate costumes. But it's the Nutcracker, and it's the Nutcracker Ballet. And I'm playing a Russian. And he has us jump off of a trampoline onto the stage in the bear costume. And if you've ever seen the show, and even if you haven't, you can picture how huge Radio City is, right? And there's a big number system on the floor. There's these, it's like a grid and there's these numbers and you have to be in alignment on your numbers because you like, you could get killed. The scenery, there's so much going on and there's so many people and the elevators go up and down. And so you're look, so I'm looking for my number, right? And I'm dancing and I can't see because the bear head's coming across and I've got like a teeny little, little, little space for me to see the number. I'm looking and I, I can't find it. And tear, it's Christmas and mm. tears start rolling down my cheeks. Oh, Nick. So I'm in a bear costume <laughs> <laughs> at Christmas crying. Oh. And I go up to my dressing room after the number. I never forget this. I take off the bear head and I look at myself in the mirror. And even though I'm successful, quote unquote, even though this is a job people would kill for, I'm miserable. Mm. And I say to myself, this is not your life. You have got to make a change. This isn't the life you want. I think I was feeling creatively stifled. I -hmm. think I was overworked. I, there were, you know, many, many things that contributed to that moment, but it was a turning point for me because up to that point, I was a victim. I had mm-hmm. victim mentality in my entire life up to that point, to be perfectly honest with you. I was saying this to somebody the other day, I was in that mode, you know, partly because of what had happened to me as a, as a kid. Mm-hmm. I continued to like find that cycle. No matter, no matter what relationship I was in or who I was with, it was abusive, it was problematic, and I was the victim. And in that moment, I made a decision to change my choice, change the way I was living, change the energy, shift the vibrational energy. Mm. And that next day, I got on the phone and I started calling every single theater I had ever worked at. And I said, hey, I'm directing and choreographing now. I'm looking for work. (laughs) Because I realized I wanted to take charge, right? Like I was the one that was standing there going, well, that light fixture is wrong. Why are they in that costume? I used to ask far too many questions. Now, granted, I had been an assistant, I'd been dance captain, but I'd never directed and choreographed, but I just decided I was going to do it. I love that. (laughs) And guess what? One of the theaters said, oh my gosh, Nick, we just lost our choreographer for Godspell. Why don't you come on down to Florida and choreograph it? And that was a month and a half later, I I found myself with my first job. Within one year, I fully transitioned to directing and choreographing. It just was seamless. It was alignment. You know, when they, people talk about alignment, alignment I was mm-hmm. aligned. It was, it was what I was meant to be doing, at least at that time. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot in, those, in, in that time. 
um, about myself, obviously, about creation, about creating, about art, about talk about being, you know, sort of radically um, open, uh, you know, radical living, mm. radical art. I just decided I was going to do it. Oh my gosh, I love this. And three years into that, I'm at a theater. I'm now 28 years old. Yes, yeah, 28, turning 29. And I'm at a theater directing a show. Uh, It's called Lyric Theater of Oklahoma. And it's a regional theater in Oklahoma City. And they fire the artistic director while I'm there. And the president of the board of directors comes to me and says, hey, Nick, uh, would you be willing to uh, run the theater for a year while we do a national search for the replacement? And I said, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I, did I know how to run a theater? No. Did I know anything about it? No. Did I feel like I could just figure it out? Yes. And so I was handed a million dollar a year budget theater and told, figure it out. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> Nick, this is insane. There's so much. I, we just, I just need to pause for a minute because mm-hmm. going from dancing at Radio City Music Hall to just making those phone calls and saying, hey, I'm a director now and choreographer. <laughs> you just are creating this for yourself. Just talk about manifesting and stepping into what you see for yourself rather than staying in whatever limitations you have right now and feeling like, well, I need to follow the rules and I need to climb the ladder in the mm-hmm. correct way. You're like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do this. I'm gonna call the people. And then and then you say heck yes to this crazy idea of being an art director, the director, art director, right? Is that what I, it artistic is? director? Yeah, artistic director. Oh my gosh, this is insane. That's huge. Yeah, I think that there was a part of me. In, again, I, I, everything's probably a duality. There's two parts. I think part of partly it was I, I didn't know what I didn't know. Mm. There's this thing called the Dunning's-Kruger effect. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, where, you know, people just, when they, they have this false sense because they don't know what they don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that was me at the time. But I also think that I just had a belief in myself. Mm-hmm. It, it really continually in my life goes back to this idea of I have a vision for myself, like, in manif- like you're saying manifesting. I could see a future version of myself before anybody else could. Mm-hmm. And I believed it. And I took steps. It's not that I just said, oh, I want to direct and choreograph. I got on the phone. I did the work, Mm -hmm. which led me to that directing choreography job that I did a really good job job at. What What the president of the board said was, your shows have been the only good ones we've had. Wow. And that's why we want you to do this. And so that year... I really dug in and and learned how to produce. And at the end of the season, the end of the year, that same board president came back to me and said, we've had the most successful financial season we've had in 10 years. And in your first year. And we've had the the best artistic season 
we've had. We would like you to stay. Will you stay? We don't want anybody else. And I did. And I set on a course to build the theater, to build it. Um, and that's what happened. When I, you know, mm -hmm. I, I started there, it was at a university campus. It was summers only. Uh, and over the next eight years, I built it to two new theaters, including we did a capital campaign, raised all the money for them. Uh, we grew the staff from about six people to 40-some. The budget more than wow. tripled. Uh, wow. and Yeah. Yeah. I, it was, a, a, again, an alignment situation where it was me being in the right person with the right amount of energy, meeting the community need and the support of the board members and 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 the team that I, that I assembled that were all there with purpose and and a passion and i think when purpose and passion happens and somebody's saying guess what this can happen and not only can it happen it's going to happen that then it begins to happen yes and you said something very important there that I think is, I'd love for the listeners to hear again. You met the community. So you were serving the community. You had your purpose, you had your passion, but you were serving the needs of the community as well. And that's big. Well, I knew it was greater than me, right? Mm -hmm. That it was in service of something greater than myself. And that was a turning point for me as well, because I think up to that point, it'd been about me and my career and mm -hmm. what I could do. And when uh, and I had a detachment from it in many ways. I was able to detach and say, how can this serve the community? Now, I always needed to to sort of push them. Like, mm -hmm. I was always, like, pro I, like prodding them, prodding the bear, like we're poking the bear, right? Like, how can we move it a little bit more forward? How can we, how can I help you think outside of your box? How can I get the community to expand? That was mm -hmm. my job, ultimately. Right. And, but you're right, it was, it really was of service. Truly was. Mm. Uh, and that, as I said, lasted, uh, about nine years. In year seven, however, I was feeling very depleted. I was feeling tired. I had been practicing yoga, but in Oklahoma City at that time, because this was almost 20 years ago now, uh, well, 15, uh, they only had two yoga classes a day mm. in the whole city. What? Can, can you imagine? I know. No. One in the morning. I live in Southern California. There's like five million yoga classes a day. I yeah. can't even imagine. <laughs> <laughs> one in the morning and one at night. Nine in the morning and five at night. Well, guess what? I couldn't go to either of those. I was working. So I, you know, this would tell you something. I brought out my DVDs and I would do these these vid these videos, right? And I built a yoga shanty in my backyard. I went to Home Depot and got one of those sheds. You know what I'm talking about? Like one of those prefab <laughs> yes. sheds. And I put a yes. hardwood floor in it and flowy curtains. And I used to go out there. And But I really wanted to, to know what I was doing. So I decided mm -hmm. between being sort of depleted and that, I took a month off and went back to New York and went to a yoga teacher training program. Mm -hmm. And in the, in the training, we are meditating. And... 
Uh, what I hear is, Nick, you need to quit your job. And I'm mm. like, um, no, <laughs> it has benefits. <laughs> it has a 401k in the theater. That doesn't really happen. My father's going to kill me. <laughs> quit your job. And I ignored it at first. I had to sit with it. But I knew it was right. I knew that intuitive voice was right. But it took me about a year to fully admit it because it was a great job, because we were doing amazing things. Because, But I knew that I needed to expand again. I There was something in me that said, you got to go back to Broadway. And so I gave them a year notice. I came back and said, you have a year to find somebody to replace me. And I began that day a production company with a friend. And this is a crazy story. And again, it's an alignment story, Tiffany, that I took a friend to, that I hadn't seen in a few years, took her to lunch and said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this producing thing. We were having conversation. And she had been in the theater years before. Years before. In fact, she was a dresser of mine when I was mm. 20 years old. And she was, a, you know, backstage dressing. But she she was the wardrobe, hired as the wardrobe supervisor. But she'll tell you this. She didn't know what she was doing. No idea what she was doing. <laughs> I love it. And people were being terribly mean to her. And my 20-year-old self just wanted to be helpful. So I turned to her and I said, okay, you need to do this for him and this for him and this for her. Don't, don't worry about me. I got it. I got it. Do this, do this, do this. And I helped her. And she never forgot it. And we remain mm. in touch over the years. And she said to me, you know, my, she said, my husband passed recently. And I said, yeah, I know. And I knew that he was uh, wealthy. And she said, I don't know what this investing, producing thing really is, but I really want to do it. Um, let's do this. I want to do it with wow. you. Wow. And that day she wrote me a check for a half a million dollars. <gasps> To start my company. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, That's it's that like... incredible. Well, it was really a crazy combination of things, right? Right time, right place. Helping somebody 20-some years before mm-hmm. in a really... In a time in which they really needed some help. And now... It was sort of my turn to need help in a way. And that's not like what I expected ever. It's not like you do it in, for something in return, but that's sort of what happened. And I began developing shows, working on shows, one in the West End and one in New York. And a year later, um, after I'd left the job in Oklahoma, um, I was a producer of a musical called Memphis that won the 2010 Tony. Uh, can you say that again a little louder for the people in the back? <laughs> <laughs> you did what on <laughs> a year after your production company started? Yeah. What happened? Won the Tony. Won the Tony. It, you know, it was really a couple years ultimately, but um, a year after I left that job, because for a year I was, it was two years mm-hmm. basically, for a year I was doing all the jobs. It was oh, insane. My, my final oh, year at the theater. But yeah, I mean, it was really a fast trajectory yet again. And who announced your award, Nick? <laughs> Her name was Bernadette Peters. Oh my goodness, just good old Bernadette. <laughs> but here's the thing. It, I realized something happened in that moment. And there is this amazing CBS still that caught it. 
Because that should be, again, a moment where everyone's like, woo, we won, we won. And there was that. But there was, again, this duality. Mm. When it was announced, everyone stood up and there's this brilliant CBS still of me where my face is not happy. It is not sad. It's blank. Mm. And I remember this moment so very clearly. The moment was, this is it? This Mm. is it? Is this how this is supposed to feel? This is not how I thought this was going to feel. All my life, since I was 12 years old, I've had my hairbrush back when I had hair, had my (laughs) hairbrush, and in the mirror, I would practice my acceptance speech. I thought it was going to feel like something else. I'm, wait, I'm going to, I'm, this is how I'm getting this award. This is, and this, as I'm walking up onto the stage, this is what's, what is going through my brain. It was wild. And it was another turning point because I realized that I had been searching outside of myself, even though I'd been practicing yoga, even though I'd been doing a lot of inner work, I was still searching outside of myself for Mm -hmm. validation to be the best boy in the world, to prove something to everyone. And there I did it. I was 38 years old. I wasn't even 40 yet. I did it. And I had this moment of, well, you know what? (laughs) You can say it, Nick. Well, shit. Now what? (laughs) Now what? Now what am I going to do? And that's really when the soul searching of my life began. Hmm. That's when I had to dig deep and I had to go cry and scream and and process a lot of, I had been doing work. Don't kid, I'd been in therapy. I'd been like, but uh, but this is when the real work happened. And it led me on a journey to what, you know, they call the dark night of the soul of really sitting in the pain mm-hmm. and feeling it and coming to a place of wallowing it even to then come out of it on the other side. And it expanded my artist. I began uh, working on documentaries and directing short films. And I started coaching people and giving back. And it just created an entirely different and expanded me in such a beautiful way. And I'm still involved with the theater. I've got another show that's you know, that I'm a co-producer on that's currently running. That's a huge hit. Yay. Awesome. Yay. I, I'm developing another show right now that I'm hopeful is going to be my trilogy of my third big hit, right? But I also am doing other things that fill my well Mm -hmm. that I hadn't done. I'd been so singularly focused that I wasn't really taking care of my inside. I, this idea of really choosing the self-love over the accolades of, of sitting there and saying, now, wait a minute, I need to look inside myself and I need to sit with this a while and I've, I've got to sit with this pain and this discomfort and I've got to figure this out. It's really powerful, Nick, and that's so important. And to me, that is one of your most radically audacious moments. That is your moment when you chose the pain, you chose the difficulty, and you chose to move through it. And then, bam, you're. it's almost like You've always been creative, but it, it seems like your creativity just bloomed and blossomed in so many different ways. I, and that is very right on, very much mm. so. I had to go into the cocoon 
right? Mm-hmm. The, the caterpillar goes into the cocoon and just when they think they're about to die, they become the butterfly. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a dark time. Uh, it was several years, to be honest. And mm-hmm. I uh, had to, to, to really dig in to all of that pain, all of the abuse, all of the feelings of not being worthy because I was a queer person, all of it. Mm. And really sit in it and be get and and learn to be comfortable in my uncomfortability. I <gasps> love that. I didn't know how to be uncomfortable. Mm. And I think that's something that has really come up for so many of us during COVID, right? Is having yes. to be uncomfortable. Like we have to sit still, which is really uncomfortable for a lot of people. And, and not necessarily have control, quote unquote, of our lives like we ever did, right? But, right. We, but our perce- perception of the control. And th- it was that period for me of, mm. of being terribly uncomfortable mm. and navigating it mm-hmm. and coming to the other side, as you say, and creativity blossoming. Writing, I started writing, I got hired to write, I got hired to direct a film. Like it just created mm-hmm. this expansiveness. Uh, and and then it really became again about how I could serve others. How could I how could I give back? How could I take the the knowledge and the wisdom that I've gained over what is now 50 years? How could I how could I take that and help others on their path? Whether it's a creative path or in their businesses, that's really what it became for me. Is how can I use all of this wealth of knowledge and information and that I have now to help others. Mhm. And you're doing that, aren't you? Yeah, that's my life now. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the path. That's the purpose. You know, when you think, what what's my why? You know, going all the way back mm-hmm. to that. What's my why? What is your why, Nick? Tell us what is your why. Yeah, it really is to help others, to serve others in some way, to guide them. Because I'm not, mm. you know, I can't really help you. Ultimately, I say help, but I can't really help you. You got to help yourself, right? Nobody could have helped me. Nobody could have, you know, gotten me through. We talked a lot about my successes today, but there were also other things that failed, right? Other projects, Mm -hmm. other um, moments. And those didn't have me shift, right? For me, it became like this ultimate success that helped me shift. But I did need a guide in that dark night of my soul. I needed a teacher, a guide. And... I think that 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 profoundly shifted me. And so I I think it, it it shifted my purpose. And what I've realized it now is that my purpose isn't necessarily in what I do, which is what I thought it was. Mm. It's in who I am and the mm. quality of what I do, no matter if I am leading a Broadway show or I'm coaching one-on-one or in this podcast interview. Mm-hmm. Mm, that is so powerful. It's not what you do, but who you are and how you show up and how you serve. That is so powerful. I think that is 
one of those lessons that is really hard to learn. We're in such a doing society. Yeah. We're in such a um, look at what I've accomplished, look at what I've done, look at what I do. And I am just as guilty of that as the next person. There is such a validation high that you get when somebody says, hey, we like you. We want you to come speak at this conference. We want you to write this article. We want you to whatever it is, you get that that validation high and that that doing gets reinforced, right? Like, oh yes, the doing is the good part. But you can get so lost in that. Yeah, and I still catch myself, right? I put a I put a reel out on Instagram. How many likes did it get? Do people uh-huh. like did people like this one? <laughs> Why didn't they like this one? How come this one didn't get as many views? <laughs> right? Yes. It's yes. A, it's in little ways as well as the mm-hmm. big ones. Yeah. And 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 I'm constantly catching myself, even now, saying, "Oh, what's the state or quality while I'm doing this and mm-hmm. after?" Yep. I think that's so normal. It's just almost impossible, especially in our metrics society. Yeah. I mean, it's something that we talk about with uh, the people that we coach for podcasting all the time is you've got to create personal metrics for success that have nothing to do with your downloads, yep. right? If your your success is based on your downloads, you will never be happy. But at the same time, who checks her downloads three or four times a day? <laughs> I'm not pointing at myself right now. I am not pointing at myself right now. It is so hard to avoid that that demon of look at the numbers, look at the numbers, look at the doing, look at the the metrics and how many, you know, friends do you have on Instagram? How many comments are on your Facebook post? How many likes are on your reels? How many downloads on your podcast? Like we are in such a society that says that these things are so important that it can be really hard to step back from that and say, no, no, that's not what's important. What's important is how I show up in the world. Well, and oftentimes they're related to money, right? Mm, Which is part mm-hmm. of the reason why it feels that way, right? Yeah. That the more downloads you have, the bigger your audience, the more sales you you have, et cetera, et cetera. And so it becomes this sort of vicious cycle that you can get yourself in. So yeah. I think what I'm learning is, yes, check my numbers, but don't let my state of being shift based on where that number is. Yes. That is powerful. That right there, mic drop moment. Don't let your state of being shift. Because you are. That's all it is. You are. You are. I am. Mm -hmm. We say in, um, you know, uh, there's a yogic philosophy of soham hamsa. I am that, that I am. Mm. And that's beautiful. Oh, Nick. Okay. Mic drop moment right there. We are about to shift into kind of the fun part. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> but before we do that, is there any last thing you want to say? You you, you were mentioning your your documentary, and I think there was something exciting happening with that. Is is that right? Well, we just finished. I'm so Yay. excited. It, it's at completion. We're, uh, uh, you know, it's been a, a very long process. It was a seven. Mm-hmm. It's a seven year experience creating that documentary, and um, to be at the finish line is so amazing. It's 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 so exciting 
It's so exciting. Mm. And uh, it's a it's a film about fibromyalgia. So it's specifically for the fibromyalgia community, but also for caregivers to help people with fibromyalgia. And um, we're just starting to put it out there into the world. So coming very soon. Let's put it that oh, way. So excited. Yeah. So excited. Yeah. And as a fellow fibromyalgia, um, I don't know what, what you call it, fibromyalgia. Fibro warrior. Fibro warrior. Ooh, I like that. Fibro warrior. Yeah. I, I appreciate work done in that area. I was so super resistant to my diagnosis, diagnosis when I got it. I was like, oh, no, no, no. But um, yeah, it's, it's a thing. So, all right. We are moving into the fun part, Nick. Okay. Are you ready? I am. I am so ready. I'm so ready for this, Tiffany. I'm with you. So ready. So ready. Okay. So I am a giant book nerd. My audience, they are giant book nerds. So we always want to know, what book are you reading? So I'm reading a very light. It's, you, you, you'd think I wasn't fun or funny, but I'm reading, <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading Healing Collective Trauma by Thomas Ooh. Sewell. Ooh, tell us about that. It's a book about, really about integrating uh integrating trauma because trauma they have found in the last couple of years, they've lit found that it's literally in your DNA that mm. beyond just your genetics, you are also, also the trauma that has been carried is in your DNA and passed on to you and mm. you can heal it. You can move through it. It's like all of those stories that are within you from your family lineage stories about like, scarcity or uh, abuse. They're in the DNA passed down, but you can shift out of them. And there's a way to heal generational trauma. And that's what this book is about. It's revolutionary. It's really shifting um, the way therapy is, um, uh, is progressing in the world. And uh, I just wanted to dive in because I wanted, again, A, I'm curious. I'm a curious human mm -hmm. and I have my own set of trauma, obviously. And I thought it would be an interesting healing modality to help my students as well. So mm. Fascinating. Well, thank you for sharing that book with us. You bet. You have to check that out. Okay. Second one, second question. Mm -hmm. They're making the movie of your life, Nick, and you get to pick three songs for the soundtrack. What are those three songs? Okay. Uh, they're all going to be from a musical because, I mean, hello. Well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. You know, Stephen Sondheim, who just recently passed, like maybe the most brilliant lyricist ever, 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 right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to go, the first one is uh, Finishing the Hat, which is, speaking of Bernadette Peters, she starred in that musical, Sunday in the Park with George, Manny Patinkin started, uh, sang the song originally. Um, and oh, he's so good. I know. And really, it's about the artist. And when do you know when a project's done? How do you walk away? And how do you walk away from things like relationships? It can ex expand out, mm -hmm. right? But like, when is something complete? When are, when are, when can you let go? When do you let go mm -hmm. of something? And it's just a beautiful song. It's a metaphor, obviously, but it's a beautiful song. Um, the second one is Less Highbrow. It's uh, Abba's Dancing Queen, because why? I'm a dancing queen. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And if you guys watch his reels, he is a dancing queen. <laughs> uh, and the third one is also a Sondheim. 
And that's I'm Still Here. And mm. uh, in good times and bum times, I'm still here. Mm. I love that. And uh, I think that's that that pretty much sums up my life. <laughs> <laughs> These are great. Thank you for sharing those. How fun. I'm See, so this fascinated is the fun part. to hear what other people have said. I, I'm going to have to go back and listen to some of your podcasts. You're just going to have to listen to all the episodes. To listen to there all of go. them to find out. <laughs> it does. It runs the gamut of um, ohms mm-hmm. to um, Taylor Swift to mm-hmm. to Pink to um, uh, rap songs. I have to, to say, I, mean, I like ohms since yeah. that is the sound of the universe, right? That's the universal yeah. sound. So I love that's yeah. a that's a great choice. Nice, right? Right. So good. although I will say ohms in all three of those songs, there you go. <laughs> I, <love it. laughs> I even had somebody tell me they don't listen to music. Oh, that they'd cut that out of their life. Oh wow. So yeah, interesting, right? Very interesting. All right. Last question, the juiciest question of all, because this podcast is all about radical audacity. So what is your latest act of radical audacity that you said heck yes to, and maybe not everybody would have? You know, it's funny that you say that, because I think that my most radical one is going back to the theater again and saying yes to a new show. Mm. Uh, After a couple of successes, what I've realized is that when people at first, at first, when people are first starting out, they, they think they fear failure, but mm-hmm. they actually fear success. Oh my goodness. You are so right. And then when you have success, you feel fa- you're, you fear failure. Mm-hmm. And so there's a part of me that had this fear of having, you know, a couple successes, big successes that, oh my gosh, what if the third one's a failure? Mm-hmm. But I made the decision to, to take the leap anyway. I love that. Elizabeth Gilbert talks about that in her book, Big Magic. And she talks about how that once you've been successful, that fear a failure can be totally debilitating and paralyzing. Yeah. yeah. And she's like, you just have to go. So what if you make a something that's crappy? It doesn't matter. You've just got to create. You've just got to create. Well, and I realized I'm, I'm doing it in all other areas of my life. I've got my second documentary going and I've got like, you know, and so I was like, Nick, this fear mm-hmm. is irrational. So take the leap. Yeah. Y- you've had other failures. Sometimes you fail, but they're not really failures, right? They're opportunities for growth and enlightenment. And when I look at it like that, when I reframe it like that, there isn't anything I shouldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. There isn't anything. Because it's all going to lead me to where I need to go. Either a lesson, an opportunity, or that quote unquote result, like we were talking about that I need. Mm -hmm. And if I can maintain that state of beingness, like we were talking about, it won't matter. Mm-hmm. So that, therefore, every day of my life is radical. Mm. I love this, Nick. This conversation has, I haven't stopped smiling the whole conversation. <laughs> I love every moment I spend with you. And I know in, in our conversation we had before when we were connecting mm-hmm. in, initially, I went and went to my book club and hung out with my friends and I was just on cloud nine. I'm all, you guys, 
I have the coolest job in the world. I get to talk to the coolest people. Let me tell you about Nick. He's so cool. And I was just on cloud nine all night. I really feel like when I spend time with you, when I get to be in your orbit, I am just lifted. I am lifted so high. And I I truly honor your story. Thank you for sharing it so openly and vulnerably and telling the painful parts along with the elation and the the big knowing. And I'm just so thrilled that my audience gets to meet you and hear about you. And I would love for them to continue connecting with you. How can they find you and continue connecting? Well, speaking of those, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. You are a terrific host. I've, I've, (laughs) I've done podcasts and you are really great. Let me say that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, all, your, all, your little... list, all your listeners should know that. And, I'm blushing. <laughs> uh, but to find me, you can you can come see my reels, like you're saying on Instagram. <laughs> I, they're worth it, you guys. Go find him and watch his reels. Uh, at the, T-H-E, nickdemus.com uh, and also... Uh, dot com. That's my website, but you can, but you know what I meant <laughs> on Instagram, Facebook, and then on my website at the Nick Demas. Excellent. Okay, everybody, you've got to go find Nick. Go message him. He is a blast. He is just so fun to be in his orbit and to learn from him and his joy, his enthusiasm, his being is phenomenal, and you will be so happy you follow him. And listeners, please message me. I want to hear what you thought of this episode because I I think you're going to love it as much as I do, and I just love to hear about it. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Thank you, Nick, for giving us this gift today of your time. We've loved every moment. Thank you for having me. Do you guys love Nick as much as I do? Do you feel as elated as I do and as hopeful? And are your creative energies flowing as much as mine are after spending time with Nick? He is such an inspiring human being. And I am so glad I opened this podcast up to inspiring men like Nick. I tell you what, it really was, I I had to sit with that for a little bit and think I'm really about elevating women's voices and women's experiences, but there's something about Nick's story that I felt would really resonate and be so incredibly powerful. And I want to make sure we are open to being inspired by all kinds of people and that that will elevate women's voices just the more diverse people that we see doing amazing things. So here's a few takeaways that I had from Nick's episode. He had this pull, this dichotomy inside himself for so long where he was running away from himself. And at the same time, he deeply knew himself. He had this conviction that no matter how much bullying he got, no matter how many no's he got, no matter how many rejections he got, he knew who he was and he was moving forward. And he he stayed in that dichotomy of knowing himself and fearing himself for a really long time. And then he realized at those Tony Awards that what he was really looking for was for validation and he was searching for it outside himself. And that was when the light bulb clicked on and he said, oh, 
I need to sit in this darkness, go into the dark night of the soul, sit in this pain, be, uh, be comfortable with my uncomfortability, and I need to work through this. And he did it, you guys. He did the hard work. And that to me is the greatest act of radical audacity is doing the hard work, sitting in the uncomfortableness, sitting in the pain, understanding it, being curious about it and working through it and having the courage and the bravery to work through that. That to me is one of the most inspiring things anybody can ever do. And finally... He talked about failures being opportunities for growth and enlightenment. And I love this so much because I also feel that there are no such thing as failures, that they're all learning experiences, even super painful disasters. They're all learning, dis- they're all learning opportunities. And this is the thing that I constantly talk about, about being able to trust yourself with whatever decision you make, that you will make it through the outcome of that decision, we are not going to always make the right decision. We will have failures in our life. We will make decisions that don't work out. How are we going to get through it? And trust yourself that you can. And that to me is the beauty of spending time with Nick is he has this deep inner knowing. He trusts himself. He knows who he is and he makes it through all those failures. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. I know your time is valuable and the fact that you spend it listening to this podcast truly means so much to me. It would also mean so much to me if you would share this episode with somebody that you know needs this inspiration. Nick's story is so powerful and I would just love for it to be shared all over the place. So thank you for sharing. And if you do share, come on over to Instagram in my DMs and let me know that you shared it. And um, maybe even tag me on your stories when you share it with your friend. I love that kind of stuff. I love hearing from you guys. I love interacting with you all. And as always, I thank you and I hope you have an absolutely beautiful day.